Presbyterian Church. We have uh, no pressing announcements other than the Lord's Supper is June 11th. And there's a ladies' luncheon on Thursday at 11.30. You can get a hold of my wife, the piano player, uh, for that, for details on that matter. Otherwise, we have the call to worship. Uh, that is uh, the demarcation between uh, the rest of life and the time in which uh, we are privileged to especially focus on our God and Savior to worship and praise his name and to learn more about him through the preaching of the word. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let's bow hearts and heads in sound of preparation for worship. stand and worship our sovereign Lord and Creator with him 
We indeed desire to gaze upon you, God Almighty, not with uh, merely our physical eyes, although we certainly want that, but no, we cannot fully comprehend you, Lord, but certainly with the eyes of faith. We will be strengthened by your word and by the praise of your name through these songs and hymns and spiritual songs, God Almighty, and through the prayer of your people. Be with us, precious Holy Spirit of truth and light and illumination, uh, that we may grow thereby and, and worship you all the more this your day. As you taught us in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, it is now and never shall be. Worlds without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have what is called the responsive reading, Psalm 101, which is the insert in the bulletin. You have a prayer list on the back side, and then the other side is Psalm 101, part of it. I will read the bold-faced, and you will read the other verses. I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. And thus we see in the psalmist his desire to follow uh, the Lord God Almighty. And we know, of course, we fall short of that. And it is Christ our Savior who has a path made the path for us both in his life and through our life, for he indwells in us by the Holy Spirit and strengthens us in our walk of sanctification. Let us go before our God and Savior with prayer and humility. We as your people, God, coming to you in this prayer of the covenant community of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come, God Almighty, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our desire and our need, Lord, and the necessity of the blood of Christ upon our lives. We are thankful, God Almighty, for your kindness and love towards us through Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and by the power and the purity of the Holy Spirit within us that has brought conviction to our hearts. We're thankful, Lord, for your love and kindness through giving us the Church of Jesus Christ, not just Providence, but all the churches of your domain, 
and all those that love the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, giving us love and kindness throughout our lives and the guidance and direction of history, of providence, Lord, of all things under your wisdom and your power directed for your glory and for our good. And our sins, Lord, we acknowledge them. We feel them, Lord. We see our selfishness. We see the hatred of our hearts and and lust and the like, Lord, and all other things within us that we ought not to have wrong desires, wrong thoughts, and wrong practices, God. We know that they are there. We fight against them. We desire, as the psalmist does in Psalm 101, Lord, to walk in the most perfect and holy way of the Lord Jesus Christ, to have a perverse heart that shall depart from us, and to flee wickedness. We can do these things, Lord, and we're grateful. We praise you, God Almighty, for the promise of your word, of the glories of the gospel, that tells us, yes, indeed, we are justified. We are declared righteous and holy in the law courts because of the perfection of Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, we are also sanctified. We are set aside in the, our life here and now, Lord, and what we do and say and our ultimate desire and purpose in life, which is to glorify you and enjoy you and with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray for our families. Pray, for, pray certainly for one another as well, Lord, whether we have our family with us, whether we are couples and single. But, Lord, that we would have continued love and obedience with respect to our position in our families, God, even for our parents, if they are not Christians, Lord, uh, to have adoration for them and take care of them as best we can in their old age. And, God, for for the children to continue to love you and to take care and love their parents and obey and submit to them. And God, we think in particular of those family members who are not saved at all. Perhaps they are our parents, perhaps they are our children, perhaps they are our uncles and nephews and cousins, Lord, that they would submit and cry out to you, God, that we would and can be an example to them. Although certainly, Lord, we feel very inadequate, for we are often very conscious in our family members and do this, Lord. They are quick to see our sins, especially when they are not believers, Lord, and point them out to us. May we, God, not shrink back, but rather stand bold in the promise of your salvation, God, and to speak as you give us wisdom. We pray for that wisdom. We pray for that courage. We pray, Lord, for the understanding of knowing when to even be quiet at times, God, for we know that there are times in our family relations, Lord, with unbelievers, that there's very little we can say anymore after many, many years. And yet we can still pray before you ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, as we see in the Gospel of Mark, working and changing the hearts of men and women. Our Lord and Savior, we pray for family members uh, who are Christians, like us, but have different uh, beliefs and understandings of the Word of God, and that we could help them mature. They would help us mature, Lord, if we are weak in some aspect of doctrine or practice, Lord, in the Word of our Savior, Jesus Christ that we are called to exhort and to help encourage one another to grow into maturity in the Christian faith. We lift up not only our spiritual concerns with respect to our families, with respect to one another as individuals, but also, God, the health of our body. For you have told us in your word you will resurrect our bodies as well and give us something better than we have here that's falling apart because of the fallenness of this world. So, Lord, may we continue to cry out to you for not just our soul, but for our bodily concerns, for chronic ailments that we know of in this church. Uh, many of that have been publicly announced over and over again, Lord, for they're there. That's what it means to be chronic, that they would be able to overcome them, find good medical help, diet or exercise or something, Lord, that they can overcome this chronic ailment and would go away. But certainly, God, that you would sustain them in their body and in their soul if it will not go away in your providence. 
that you deign that they carry this burden in their lives, Lord, that they would not grow weary and discourage God, but to accept your providence in their life. Now, Lord, we pray for other ailments in our bodies and sicknesses, as some of them are not able to make it to worship today because they are sick, that they would heal and heal quickly, God Almighty. We ask for wisdom in taking care of our body. There is lots of information out there, especially if we go on the Internet, and many of it seems conflicting, what exactly can work for our ailment and our sicknesses, or even if we are generally healthy. And we certainly praise you, God, for most of us are generally healthy, to maintain the health, Lord, and not to give up. We ask God for that understanding and wisdom for someone who has a better understanding, God, to submit to that so we can take care of the body that you've given us, Lord, for your glorious name's sake. We ask God for your spirit to be upon us, both for wisdom and opportunity and life, for our church to have outreach, to speak as we can, Lord, with one another in our lives, for our neighbors, for our co-workers, for others that we are working with, Lord, and we hear again in prayer request time this morning, uh, that we could help them, Lord, as we will talk about here in the sermon today, to advance the kingdom of God spiritually and materially, Lord, in their lives, that we can be an earthly vessel for their spiritual good, that they would repent and trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and that we can point them to our Lord and Savior and the call of repentance and the call of faith and trust in you and not trust in their own wisdom of how to save themselves, Lord God Almighty. And Lord, lastly, we pray for, again, the material world that we live in, the earthly things, the things we have to deal with, money, the economy, God, and we pray for and ask, Lord, for continued peace and stability so that our families and our churches can have peace and stability. Or if things go south and get worse in our economy, it makes it worse for us. We ask God, especially not only for our neighbors who are unbelievers, that is, our fellow men and Americans, Lord, that the economy would be good for them, but also especially for the church, that there would be families supporting jobs for them. We think, of Lord, especially in those high expensive cities such as Denver has become. It's very hard for young families to start out, young Christian families, Lord, who want to do the right thing and... Uh, grow as a family numerically, and they need money, and they need good jobs, and we pray to that end. We lift up our prayer requests, Lord, both spoken and unspoken, for your glorious name's sake, submitting to whatever decision that you have, God Almighty. We pray for all these things, that you, Lord, our Savior and God, may be exalted in all that we do. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. 
We are grateful, God Almighty, that you have blessed us in your providence such that we can give these tithes and offerings. And we ask and we pray, Lord, that as only you can, they would be multiplied and used wisely, we ask, God, for our material concerns. We think especially of the diaconal care and our spiritual concerns with respect to preaching, Lord, and spreading the word of God and encouraging the saints, we pray, as, Lord, your name be magnified in all that we do. Amen. As we are standing, let's go ahead and sing Psalm 97b. Psalm 97, 97b.
You may be seated. We have the reading of the Apostles' Creed, which is a green insert on your Trinity hymnal, probably in the back or the front. One side's the Apostles' Creed, the other is the Ten Commandments. We will read the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we know by now, the Lord's Prayer, specifically verses 9 and following. As I am preaching through the Lord's Prayer, through a series of sermons, petition by petition, let us listen attentively to the Word of God. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. With this prayer of your blessed Son, God Almighty, we ask that we would continue to be edified and learn thereby, especially as we zoom in and focus upon the second petition about the kingdom of God, Lord Almighty, that we would be encouraged to continue on in our duties to help maintain and expand the work of your kingdom. And grateful, Lord, that we can be a part of that effort, that you use earthly means for spiritual ends, Lord Almighty. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, as you know, I'm going to zoom in, as I warned you last week, upon the second petition about the kingdom of God, although not an obscure topic. We hear about the kingdom of God. People often talk about it in the church, and that's good and well. I will cover an aspect of that not often talked about, how the kingdom of God is advanced through ordinary, non-spiritual means. That's going to sound probably pretty strange to your ears, but hear me out. So the first point, I'm going to drill in a little bit to this part of the petition I talked about a little bit last week. The first point is destroying Satan's kingdom. That's the first uh, part of the answer that we have in the shorter catechism, or actually it's the larger catechism here. I'm quoting question 102, if you want to look that one up. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. That's the first point they point out. And the logic is implied and not given here, and I think we all understand it. If God's kingdom is going to expand, Satan's kingdom must retract and collapse and be destroyed. They both cannot expand at the same time. There's only so many people. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, his kingdom is primarily the souls under his thumb. 
And there are only so many souls in this world and over time. So as they say, it's a zero-sum game. <laughs> and one or the other is going to win. It's going to be Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, as promised in his word, as we see in history, and even Western civilization that we've had for such a long time. The influence of Christianity upon it is part of an outward expression of God's kingdom. And thus, our forefathers wisely pointed out, when Jesus talks about thy kingdom come in that petition, by implication it means that Satan's kingdom would not come. <laughs> that would be destroyed. And so I want to drill in a little bit to that point here as well. Destroying the kingdom. Matthew 12, 25 is one of the proof texts he uses, and I want to go to the other ones. Romans 16, 20, for example. Destroying the kingdom, the broader idea of destroying the kingdom, Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Whose feet? Your feet. Isn't that interesting? You're involved in this destruction of Satan's kingdom. And we know this is an allusion to the Old Testament where Christ will crush the head of the serpent who bruised the heel of the Messiah of Jesus. And here it's God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Of course, it's through the power of Jesus Christ. Christ has done it on the cross, and he's applying that triumph in our lives, brothers and sisters. And in applying that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are crushing Satan and therefore his kingdom. If you crush the head of a kingdom, you're crushing the kingdom itself as well, obviously. First John 3, 8, we read, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's part of the work of Jesus Christ. That is not simply and only, you're being born again, you're being sanctified, you're being adopted. That's great and wonderful. But in doing that is also involved in the flip side, Right? The destruction of Satan's power in your life and of his kingdom and his influence upon you. We need to be reminded of that when we tell others and we urge them to be born again. Part of that urging is that they would flee the power and the kingdom of Satan. And not give the devil victory. But rather give praise and all glory to God that they would be born again. And there are other passages as well they go over, but I don't think there's much disagreement amongst all of us. Uh, that part of our prayer in advancing God's kingdom is the destruction of Satan's kingdom. But specifically, what does that look like? What instruments can we use to that end? Spiritual destruction, that is, his power over believers is destroyed. That moral suasion that he has over the unbelievers would be undermined. That his kingdom over the church and upon and against the church, that is, his efforts to destroy the church, he doesn't have power over us per se, but he's trying, would be halted as well. That wherever churches are planted and people are saved, there is spiritual victory over Satan and his kingdom. We get that. That, that makes sense. Where faithful preaching is let loose, there Satan's kingdom collapses and crumbles. His influence is undermined. Isn't that what we want? Yes, we do. A thousand times. But there's more than just spiritual destruction of Satan's kingdom. The confession isn't explicit about this. It doesn't make this distinction I'm making. I use the word spiritual and material or earthly, as over and against spiritual, that which is not seen, the devil's kingdom, for example, is destroyed through righteous laws. If unrighteousness and wickedness are the devil's tool, what's the opposite? Righteousness. And not just personal piety, but even collective piety. And that's one of the emphases of the Bible. We see that in the Old Testament church. We see that in the Christian church, in the New Testament, that you be a holy 
body, not just individually. Christianity isn't just you, yourself, and your Bible. It's all of us together as God's people. And so righteous laws are a part of that. We, you can imagine a church that's celebrating abortion. They exist. They're called the mainline denominations, the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the like. Are they not rejoicing in wickedness? Is that not the den of iniquity? A church that's doing these things? Of course. You would say a thousand times, obviously, that that church has been turned over to Satan. That they are rejoicing in the death of babies. And they think there are multiple ways to heaven. That's the death of souls. This, this is obvious. Oh, battery died. You can probably get them out. See if you can get them out. My fingers can never get them out. Notice what me. Here we go. So the one is for you all, the second one is for Facebook. That's why I have two. So it's obvious that when I mention devil's kingdom is also destroyed through righteous laws, what I'm talking about. But, of course, I would say not just in the church, but even wherever Christians are. If we have a Christian magistrate, and he's like, you know, God's kingdom is so spiritual, it's no earthly good. And so I'm not really going to enforce any righteous laws on this planet. You'd be like, what? What kind of a Christian are you? That's crazy talk. And one reason why I'm drilling into this is because there's that variation of thought, even in Reformed churches. It's the weirdest thing. It's a bad thing, but it exists. And I'm trying to give you equipment and understanding of how to deal with these matters from uh, the Bible and the confession itself. So they are destroyed by righteousness and holiness in life, of course, individually. Whenever we obey and follow Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, there are Satan's power and influences undermined in our lives familiarly, that is, when our families obey and follow God, right? We say that's a Christian family. That's a good thing. Not Satan's family. And community-wise and broader, wherever our communities are, wherever there are individuals and families collectively working together, it will start making an influence. Not just, I don't mean uh, upon unbelievers around us, right? If you outnumber a bunch of unbelievers in your local community, the HOA or something, or a small little town, and you pass a bunch of good righteous laws, that's great. But that also is undermining Satan's kingdom and advancing God's kingdom insofar as wherever Christians are, that's where God's kingdom is. We must not forget that. It's not like God's kingdom only exists on Sunday. And throughout the rest of the week, where's God's kingdom? I don't know where God's kingdom is. Maybe it's only, this is what has traditionally been called pietism, maybe it's only on your knees in the prayer closet, just you, yourself, and the Bible. No. 
to when you're outside the prayer closet on your job. And I don't, of course, mean that you do your job uh, like a mathematician. I do math as a Christian, like a Christian math. There's no such thing as a Christian. It's a math that God made for everybody and everyone can use it. And you can learn it from unbelievers as well. In fact, we all probably did. But you're still a Christian while you're doing your math, while you're building your house, while you're doing your job, and there is God's kingdom. Simply, that's it. That's all I'm saying. When the wicked laws and policies are ignored or turned over, so on the flip side, not just enacting righteous laws, but not enforcing and doing unrighteous laws is a good thing as well. And of course, I'm not saying we're looking for a new heaven, a new earth. We know these things will pass away and collapse eventually. Does that mean we give up? We know churches ebb and flow. Does that mean we just, oh, whatever, you know, all churches just... This world is, we're just always going to lose. So why bother? I'm just going to stay in my house, never get a job, never work. No one does that. Not even dispensationalists who have one of the worst eschatologies, the most dimmest view of things of this world. At least historically they did. I was a dispensationalist, by the way. They don't even do that. They still get up in the morning hopeful that they can get a, a nice yard worked on, a good pay raise, right, advancement of their life. And by extension, of course, if a lot of them do it, the life of all of you in a community. We all work together. We all know this. It all affects one another. So that's what I mean by destroying Satan's kingdom spiritually, what we typically think of preaching, being converted. But, of course, part of that is sanctification, obeying God's law by the power of the Spirit within us. I know you don't feel like you're obeying it enough, but make brothers and sisters. We see what's out there. You know what's going on. You've watched the news. Very, very wicked. And it's even worse, unfortunately. But you, you are standing firm and preserving and persevering because of the Holy Spirit within you. The second point, advancing God's kingdom. And that's the negative side. Destroying Satan, destroying his influence and power. Positive side, advancing God's kingdom spiritually. It would be a major point. And the second point would be materially or earthly. Spiritually defined, so I'm going to give you the, the definition more precisely. I mean more precisely the inward man. Because we have an inward man and an outward man is the old way of talking about it. Uh, we, I've looked up the old ways of talking about it. I had a quote from Cotton Mather, for example, but I said enough to put it in here. The life of the soul and the life of the body is kind of the way you can break that down, but not absolutely. So the inward man, of course, is your soul, who you are, your faith and your love of Jesus. Although not expressed with your mouth, you could be born dumb. You could be born deaf and blind. But if you have trust and belief in Jesus Christ, that's a motion and action of the soul, isn't it? You could be in a coma. You could be sick all your life. You can't get out of bed and your arm's blown off. I mean, people have gone through this terrible things. My point being, it's different than the body part, than the things that you can do. I can't make it to worship. I'm stuck in my house. There's a a war going on. I'm physically unable. No, one's, no one knows I exist or whatever. We know that you can still worship God in your heart even if you can't make it to church. That's what I mean by the inward versus the outward life. And the outward life, of course, is the opposite of that. Although not contrary to that, it's just different. Because we know we're a body and a soul. And that there are some distinctions. I'm making one of those is that your body doesn't believe, your soul believes. Right, Your body is under the control of your soul, who you are, and can do many things and should do many things, and influences even your soul. So there's a feedback, as it were. And they both work together and are called by God's glory to thrive and to glorify God. Not just merely subsist, but to advance and thrive. 
our prayer here, I didn't read the rest of that again, of the larger catechism, thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, and that the kingdom of grace may be what? Bare minimal and subsisting on mere existence? Or that it would be advanced? That's what I mean by the word thrive. It would be kind of weird to advance your life. It sounds odd, so I say thrive. And so, because they are these two closely related, yet different parts of man, the soul and the body, there are therefore different, and often actually overlapping, but sometimes distinct instruments to the same end of thriving with the body, thriving with the soul, thriving for God's kingdom. The inward man thrives and glorifies God according to the word of God, the means of grace in the church, more precisely more directly. The outward man thrives and glorifies God according to the revelation of God, both the Bible and natural revelation, and the commonsensical means of society. And so, with respect to the things of this world, which man would still have, that's why I said we talk about the inward and outward with respect to the Reformed tradition, but not an exact demarc- uh, distinction as though they're separated. There's an overlap, because before the fall, Adam never fell, he would still have a soul. He would still have a family, and the family would expand, and they would make a community. And that community would expand and become a nation or something. And you would have this communal living, not, not communism, but you know, individuals in community, one word, uh, doing things and advancing things or whatever else the case may be. The fall destroyed all that in a good sense, and the bad, destroyed the goodness of it into a bad way of a community now directed towards evil. But that communal natural life, what Cotton Mather talks about, the outward life, is dictated by all kinds of things outside the Bible as well. That is common sense how you run a society. The Bible doesn't specify, as we talked about before, how to run a society in all the details, like speed limits. It's simply not there. That falls under the fifth commandment. The rulers, not just the parents, under the fifth commandment, parental authority, ruling authority, makes these decisions that they think is bad enough. So, the divinely appointed means for the spiritual, for the soul in particular, and more immediately upon the soul, is the church visible and the church invisible. The invisible one, of course, is you are born again. And your being born again doesn't change your body. It's still still falling apart, (laughs) right? But your soul is being renewed and regenerated day by day, the Bible tells us. And that's because you are now united to Jesus Christ in his body. He is the head. We call that the church invisible. You see that? So that's different from the body. So there's this distinction Cotton Mather's mentioning, and that makes a difference with respect to what the means of grace, prayer, sacraments, preaching, and even more broadly, outside of the formal means of grace, is the adjective I use, fellowship throughout the week. Christians don't want to be an island. Christians are not supposed to be separated from one another. The Bible's very clear about that. And that helps you grow as a Christian in your inward man. And the Bible talks about, right, the inward man, the old, the old who you are and has been born again. That's why that distinction is helpful in some of these discussions about what does it mean to advance the kingdom of God. Well, if wherever you are is where Christ rules over you. He must, because he's your Lord, he's your king, and therefore you're in his kingdom by definition. But it's not your body so much, now is it? I mean, the prayer... Although you pray for your body, and you may get better with your body, but not ultimately because it's going to die. <laughs> Sorry. It, it's going to die unless Christ Jesus comes. You will die. So the prayer affects and helps your health, yes. 
by God's grace, but it doesn't really have that kind of effect that it does on what? Your soul. See that? It has a different effect upon your soul. And same with the means of grace in preaching. Preaching illuminates your heart. You become born again. And after you're born again, the preaching illuminates your heart all the more. So you become more obedient in your soul, in your thoughts, but also in your actions, in your outward life, in your communal life. Again, you would have had if we never had the fall. All that's still here. It's just now sinful communal life, community, society, and all that. And so these means, the invisible one being born again, in God's invisible church, we don't read the hearts, we read actions and words. The visible church, by which the means of grace have been given, prayer, sacraments, preaching, and of course fellowship amongst us, church officers as well, and church discipline has been given to the church and no one else. So the institution, the visible church, is there for the, the inward man, for your soul. Isn't it? For your body as well, but specifically and especially for your soul. In a way, the rest of society is not. God has not given us your mayor, your judge, your local business, your local club, right? That's all this natural life, all this communal life I'm talking about, the outward man, as the old language went. That's not there to help your soul, per se. It's not its direct, immediate thing as such. God has given us the preaching of the word, the prayer, and the life, church officers, and church discipline. And so it's a strict meaning, I mean, the life of the soul and those outward means directly related to the life of the soul, thus preaching and prayer and the like. That's why I say direct, indirectly. We're going to get to that next topic, right? Psalm 72, 8 and following, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, and all kings shall fall down before him, and all nations shall serve him. That's the proof text used by the Puritan forefathers about the advancement of God's kingdom. And if you notice in that language of the advancement of God's kingdom, it is what? Literal kings bowing before Jesus. And we have that in our history, don't we? King Alfred the Great was a Christian of England. And others like him were literal fulfillments of that prophecy. Isn't that amazing? I grew up, as you know, many of you know, being taught that prophecies were always future-oriented. It's, it's way down the road, and maybe even right now, because we're in the end times. They've been saying that for 150 years now. As opposed to, no, you literally are fulfilling these prophecies. Not in the millennium. We are in the millennium now. We are in that thousand-year metaphorical language of a metaphorical book called Revelation until Christ Jesus returns, that period in between. And these things are being, the Gentile nations gather into the church. We are the Gentiles. We are gathered into his church in fulfillment of these prophecies. And so this brings us naturally to the second and last point, advancing the kingdom of God, not just spiritually, that is your soul in particular and the preaching and prayer and meditation, your Bible reading throughout the week as well. That doesn't do, what does that do for your body? It does nothing. It doesn't even directly affect your communal life. It indirectly affects it insofar as you become more obedient and holy, of course. Advancing the kingdom of God materially, our earthly. And that sounds really weird when I say that, but I have no other language to use. When I say spiritual, I mean by spiritual, the strict meaning of the life of the soul and those outward means directly related to the life of the soul, means of grace, and thus preaching and prayer. But materially or earthly or non-spiritual is attached to and supporting the second meaning of spiritual, that is, 
more broadly conceived are the earthly tools of this world. And I'll give you an obvious example of this. You need, and according accordance to 1 Corinthians 9, to support your pastor. And not just with good wishes for his soul. You see that? Paul is assuming, he doesn't expound it, but that there are earthly tools and instruments used for the advancement of God's kingdom. And one of those is you support your pastor with money and foods and shelter or something so that he can live and not have these distractions and worries and preach. Right? We all know this. We all expect it. You got to eat. Pastor's got to eat. The church has to have food or you're all going to die. And the church will be gone. But it's Jesus' church. Yeah, well, that's the invisible church. He brought you home. But the visible church, he says, you got to use these supporting structures to maintain it. you got to have a place to worship. you got a place to live. Not just so you think typically on Sunday. I don't, just, I don't mean just on Sunday. Throughout the week, you are a Christian. You're under God's rule. You're in his kingdom, no matter where you are. you got to live. you got to have a house, roof over your head. You're going to freeze in the winter. These are what I mean by material, earthly means by which they have spiritual ends. They may not have spiritual ends in the case of unbelievers because they don't care about God's kingdom. They don't care about God. They just like to live in this world and get out the biggest house they can, the most number of food and security and safety for this life, for their body, and care a little of their soul. Right? That's the effect of the fall. The effect of the fall hasn't changed the fact we're still social creatures who live in community, who have nations and cities and businesses and clubs. Right? And those things must be maintained as a Christian in those institutions. You will maintain them um, by material means. Now, some of those institutions may do nothing for the kingdom of God, and others may be very helpful for the kingdom of God. So they are earthly means and vessels for a spiritual end when you become a Christian. So that's what I mean by this way of speaking. No money, no pastor or church building, no diaconate. How can you help with material problems and poor widows? Oh, don't worry about it, widows. You got the bread of Jesus Christ and of life. You don't need food. People literally talk that way. Even in non-charismatic circles, I run across them. It tends to be a very confused way of understanding how things are done. There's a spiritual part of man and a material part of man, or outward or inward man, however we wanted to talk about this distinction, that overlap, to be sure, in some ways. But in other ways, uh-uh, you got to feed that body. <laughs> You're going to die. And if you've got a dead pastor, who's going to preach? you got no one to preach, how are you going to advance the kingdom of God? See, God uses earthly... I mean, even preaching itself was a moving of the mouth. It's a physical thing. It's a material thing. It's an earthly thing. But for spiritual ends, the saving of the soul, as only the Spirit of God can do. So let us rethink, perhaps, how we use our language and how we see things should be and can be done to advance the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. Because people will say, the only way you can advance is through preaching. That is not true. Strictly speaking, it is insofar as, well, the soul needs preaching. But even then, you can't have a preacher unless he's sent. And you can't be sent unless you can support him. Well, he can work for himself. Okay, then he'll preach less. Because he's got to work on the side. We know pastors who do that now. They preach less, they work less, because they have two jobs. So it's going to come back to supporting him one way or the other, supporting all of us. This is how God has so designed these things. So supporting, earthly supporting means, uh, a structure that helps and assists material means, causes, occasions. You've heard that phrase before, that we 
use to advance the kingdom of God. That's why we're always asking for money in churches, because this is how simply God has designed this world. Larger Catechism question 191. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances. That's the prayer with respect to thy kingdom come. It gets more specific here in question 191. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances. There you have the inward man, the inward life of the Christian. Purge from corruption. I mentioned that already. It's obvious. You don't want an impure church. Countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. That language is in the American edition of the larger catechism. Some of you may understand the distinction when I say that. Because we got rid of in the confession, which is different than the catechism, which is a series of questions and answers. In the confession, we made a difference with our Scottish brothers and gave less of a role with respect to the magistrate and the church. But we still kept in the larger catechism the language of countenance and maintained by the civil magistrate. I think a number of reformed people have forgotten that in church officers. Countenance, to approve or favor, to encourage moral support. Maintained, to support materially or concretely. We know historically that meant they literally got money from taxes, the churches did. And in fact, New England did that for a long time. In America, the New England churches, the congregational churches, up to about 1830, I think it was, or 35, they had built into their constitution that the church of the New England way, they called it, was congregational churches, and they got support from the state. You pay taxes, and that was basically a tithe. Part of that uh, went to the church. So historically, that's what maintained meant by practice in Europe and even part of America. And, of course, the American scene, the American Presbyterian Church, uh, we are part of, said we don't want to do that anymore. But the language is still here. That's why I say not just financially, but materially or concretely, there's some kind of support from the civil magistrate, according to our own confession, which, as a church officer, I have sworn to uphold, because I believe it's a good summary of the Word of God. And I'm expounding it for you. The church, uh, Ger- uh, Johannes Gerhardus Voss, J.G. Voss, a professor, um, a uh, very godly man, has a confession, has a commentary on the larger catechisms. There's not many commentaries on the larger catechism, as you can imagine. He says, the church should be countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate by being protected in the security and enjoyment of its rights and freedoms. Don't mess with those churches. You can't outlaw Christianity. Also, and it's pro- uh, it is proper for the state to countenance and maintain the church by remission of taxes on church property. So he gives some examples of what, what he means, short of actual taxpayer money going to the churches, of what it can mean and looks like to countenance and maintain Christianity in America. And he wrote the commentary, I don't know, the 60s or something, a long time ago, 50s. To what end? Countenance and maintained by the civil magistrate colon, that the ordinance, I'm reading the larger catechism, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed. Our confession assumes, and the Puritan fathers assumed, I'm trying to unpack for all of us, that earthly means are used to spiritual ends, and this is one of them. That we have tax acceptance. This is great, that we keep more of our money. I don't want to stop that. But there are people Again, in reform circles, conservative circles, who say, no, no, that's, that's, we got separation of church and state. We never had that in America, as you all know. I'll go through my Sunday school class on that. The way they talk about it today. It, if we do not have laws to maintain peace and security, 
If we do not have laws to maintain peace and security, how are you going to live in your own house? You live there because you believe and trust in the laws and the police and the firemen and other things to maintain your peace and security beyond what you can do. I know we talk about individualism in America, but we don't really believe it. Because in real practice, we need one another. We need those laws. We need a good tax base. And we need um, policemen we trust to stand up and stop rioters from destroying your house. Is that not the same thing you need for your church? It's easy to say we need this kind of abstract separation of church and state. If you live in the West where it's, we have the security and safety that you don't have in, I don't know, Africa, Asia, Middle East. So our forefathers, being very wise indeed, Understood from the Word of God, as I've unpacked a little bit, I'll give another verse, 1 Timothy 2, 1, 2, that we need the state to countenance and maintain the church, at least at a minimum, for security's sake, safety's sake. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made to all men for kings and all who are in authority. Great. We all agree with that. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Not as just merely American citizens, but what? Specifically as Christians. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking to Christians about Christianity. 1 Timothy 2. In all godliness and reverence. The prayer is that we pray for our magistrates to so arrange society that we can live as Christians a peaceable and quiet life in all godliness and reverence. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, how can you have a peaceful life in all godliness and reverence if you cannot reverence and have godliness to God on the Lord's Day because our society says, forget Christians and having the Lord's Day off? See that? Fourth commandment. Dude, that will cut under, undercut libertarians every time because it's a communal law. It means we need to have some state... Recognition, and we used to have the blue laws, even in Colorado until about seven years ago. Couldn't have alcohol, can't sell a car on Sunday. Why? The assumption was a hundred years ago, we're a Christian nation, more or less. There's enough Christians here that we're going to honor them and let them have the Lord's Day off to countenance and maintain. That's what that means. And that's the longest short of it. And I'm already going too long right now. And I have more evidence, even from our confession. And I will skip through it quickly here. Question 118 of the Sabbath. The charge of keeping the Sabbath is more specifically directed to governors of families and other superiors, i.e. the civil magistrate. And you want your children to work on Sunday, or you want them to have it off on Sunday? I think you all want them off on Sunday, don't you? Say, come worship and be with God's people. But you can't have that. The civil magistrate is like, you know, it's a spiritual entity. It's a spiritual thing. I'm earthling. Can't touch that. What? Again, there are Reformed people who talk this way. They just ask them, what about the Fourth Commandment? Do you not care? I care. I used to have a job outside of being a pastor. It sounds terrible. Outside of being a pastor. And then Westminster Confession of Faith 23.2, it says, quote, the civil magistrate, quote, ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace. Justice and peace, y'all get. That's the job of the magistrate, but piety? What? Again, brothers and sisters, earthly things to godly means, to spiritual means. The Sabbath is the first example I can think of of piety that the magistrate can uphold for the sake of the church. So if I studied this, and I hope I've convinced you as well, and I'll lastly read Confession 23.3, that 
This is part of our heritage, and we've got to pray to this end, to work to this end. The language I use is, I pray and ask God Almighty for a safe space for Christianity in America. What do you want to call that? A safe space for you, your church, your family, and the like. That's what our desire is. Our Lord and Savior calls us to pray to the end to advance the kingdom of God. And the means he's given us is more specifically for our soul of the church, but more broadly, the structures that support the church in this material world that we live in to those spiritual ends. Let us pray. Our God and Savior, we praise you, Almighty, for your wisdom, how you so designed man to have a body and a soul in the interaction, which can be confusing to some degree, but very clear in the other, Lord, that you have so designed that, that earthly things, material things, the things of this world, in the best sense of that word, things that would have existed without the fall, are used to a spiritual end for our souls, Lord, for the maintaining of the most simplest thing, obedience to your law, God, that we can have the Lord's day off. Help us to that end, we pray, to work and pray to that end, and to convince others who are confused in this matter, Lord, that this is the true way. In your name we pray, for your glorious name's sake. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 93. Excuse me, Psalm 93. Psalm 93. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Mm -hmm.